This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's sort of like a physical, but in this case, the patient getting the checkup is America's climate. From NASA to NOAA, scientists have put together what they call an authoritative assessment of the science of climate change. And their new message is clear. People are changing the climate. We're going to dive into this and other climate news with environmental scientist Alan Townsend, who's also vice chancellor of research at CU Boulder, and climatologist Jim White. He's just become dean of arts and sciences at CU, formerly director of the school's Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research. And gentlemen, welcome back to the program. Good morning, Ryan. Good morning. Thank you. So the New York Times published a final draft of this report. It is part of the National Climate Assessment. Uh, The Trump administration has yet to comment on it. But over the weekend, the White House decided to disband the panel behind the climate assessment. Uh, Alan, when you look at this new report on the state of the country's climate, what stands out to you? Well, what I think stands out for me most, Ryan, is just uh, further reinforcement of how clear things are. Um, Put most simply, uh, it's getting warmer. It's getting warmer faster. Uh, The climate is changing, and it's us. We're the ones doing it, and the time to respond to that is getting short. There is a link to this report at cprnews.org. Again, it's the final draft. I'll say that a spokeswoman for NOAA says disbanding the federal panel, quote, does not impact the completion of the fourth national climate assessment, which remains a key priority. Jim, what stands out to you in this climate report? Well, it's, uh, I guess what stands out is what doesn't stand out. It's, uh, this is information that we've known for some time. Um, it's uh, it's clear that human beings are causing climate change. It's clear that those changes are going to have great economic impacts. They already are having economic impacts. And um, <clears throat> to continue to ignore uh, what's happening uh, really puts us, the, the country, farther and farther behind, um, both in terms of adapting to these kind of changes and, and getting out ahead of it and, and being part of the solution and benefiting economically from being part of the solution. Alan, in particular, you called out the warming. What does the report have to say about warming in particular? We've seen a lot of records broken lately, haven't we? We have. Um, and that's a longer list than you probably want to go over on, on this morning's show. But, you know, it, it makes it very clear that Um, So, for example, we've warmed more than a degree globally uh, just in the last few decades. And again, what sticks out that Jim alluded to here is not only is it is it crystal clear that that warming has occurred, but that they're really one of the things that the report stresses is there is just no other reasonable explanation behind that warming other than our own activities. And again, you know, Jim put it right. We've known that connection for a long time. And this is just. Uh, adding adding more certainty to it. Yes, this report says it's extremely likely that human influence has been the dominant cause of warming since the mid-1950s. And this report lays out what extremely likely means. There's a helpful little guide, uh, and that means 95 to 100 percent likelihood. C- can you lift the veil on something like that a bit for us, Jim, when, when scientists are able to arrive at language that says extremely likely. What goes into 95 to 100 percent certainty? Well, it's, 
I have to chuckle because this is really scientists being scientists. <laughs> um, we, we try to find words to express uh, probability because uh, we think and we work in terms of probability. Let me just take a step back and be a regular good old human being and tell you that human beings are causing climate change, period. Um, I don't think we need the, uh, to parse the language. Uh, we understand enough about the simple physics behind this problem uh, to know that if you add more greenhouse gases to the atmosphere, you will change climate. And we are changing climate. And that's, uh, uh, it's not something that uh, neither scientists nor politicians should be equivocating about. Uh, given that we're talking about science on the day of the solar eclipse, uh, it seems worth bringing up the eclipse itself and a, a meme I saw circulating over the weekend, Alan, that said, you know, th there's very little doubt in the science of eclipses. Why should there be doubt in the science of climate change? Is, th is that an apples to apples comparison to you? No, it's not entirely an apples-to-apples -apples comparison, um, but the underlying point there, I think, is, is really valid, right? I mean, the, you know, the science of predicting an eclipse is in many ways simpler than the science of predicting all the details of what will happen with climate. Where I think it's important to focus here and remember, though, is the point here is that society places its trust in decision-making, whether that's individual things that we choose to do, you know, people are, a whole lot of people here in Colorado have already jumped in their cars and gone north to watch this in Wyoming, yeah. and, and they've done that based on a scientific prediction. We, we make decisions about what we eat, what we drive, what we take from the doctor, so much of what we do in our daily lives based on science, um, the evidence of that science and the predictions of science, and, and the, the amount of evidence and the quality and depth and breadth of the predictions within climate change science and climate science is so substantial now that society really should place their trust there too and move towards collectively figuring out what we do about it. Now, you know, Jim alluded to this before. This is no small problem. Um, we ought to be worried and we ought to take it seriously. But we're not yet at the point where we can't come together and think of some, some really different paths that, that are also beneficial in other ways. We just need to get past this argument point. Jim, you mentioned uh, in this new climate report, this, this big assessment of the nation's climate, uh, the economic impacts in particular. What stood out to you about how climate change could cost the country? Well, change, um, change is expensive, period. Um, and uh, in terms of climate change, I think we need to think in terms of uh, crop yields, um, where we have drought, where we have rainfall. Um, we're seeing large rainfalls happen more uh, in the eastern part of the United States. I think there's been like a 70% increase in large rainfalls. Um, and just ponder that for a second. When we build uh, sewer systems and when we you know, when you flush the toilet and all that stuff, all that infrastructure was designed around a certain amount of fresh water flowing through the system. And when that amount of fresh water goes up, the pipes aren't the right size and the uh, sewer systems don't work as well as they should. And that's extraordinarily expensive uh, to fix. Um, some of the biggest expenses coming down the roads are things like uh, as, as the oceans begin to, to rise or continue to rise, I, I should say. Uh, we have trillions of dollars of real estate and infrastructure along the coasts 
and we're going to have to figure out a way to, to move that stuff or abandon it. Uh, the Navy alone is spending billions of dollars already raising the docks up because uh, they have to do that. Uh, the Navy's sort of stuck wherever the land meets the ocean. That's where the Navy has to be. So this is a, there's a lot of costs that come to this. And it's not just uh, the folks who live near the coast. You know, we in Colorado, we pay taxes too. So we're, we support the Navy. We support um, federal flood insurance program, all those things. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we check in on climate news uh, occasionally on this program. Joining us this time uh, to talk through some of the headlines uh, environmental scientist Alan Townsend, who's also vice chancellor of research at CU Boulder, and climatologist Jim White, who formerly directed the uh, Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research. And our focus right now is a big new climate report that came out from a slew of government agencies. It's an assessment, essentially, of the country's climate uh, with climate change. And um, when it released the final draft of this report, the New York Times mentioned a rapidly advancing area of research, and it's called attribution science, finding a link between climate change and specific weather events. Uh, this new report does do some of that, but I, I don't know. I, I think of the Colorado floods in 2013, for instance, which this report says there's mixed research on in terms of connecting them directly to climate change. How, how hard is that kind of work, Alan? It's hard. <laughs> and, you know, there, there's a reason that... Uh, you know, so if you look at climate predictions and you look at some of the the general ones, there are some that have been made since you know way back um, before even the turn of the 20th century that have still proven to be largely accurate today. Oh. Um, the real trick is is going from when we heat up this whole global system with a few simple changes to physics, as, as Jim alluded to, and then ask, all right, well, you know, here was this one event that happened. Was that climate change or not? That's tricky because that variation in weather. It is true in our Earth system no matter what. But um, one of the things that we've been able to do, both because of the amount of time that we have changed the system already, the amount of basically fuel we've put on the fire, plus the development of scientific techniques, a lot of this is about, you know, you'll hear this in, in a number of realms right now about big data, right? So techniques where we're able to bring together enormous amounts of data from a lot of different areas and sift through them in, in very modern, very high-resolution ways and ask what the contribution to the patterns in those data are. And, and that's where some of the big advances in this attribution have come from, is being able to look over time in recent time and ask, all right, how much of that signal that we're seeing seems to be emerging above the background variability and you can put a fingerprint of climate change on it? And so in that, for example, we're seeing now really very clear evidence that um, warm anomalies, so very, very hot days, big heat waves like we saw this summer in the yeah. Middle East and Phoenix and a bunch of places, more and more of those clearly are bearing the signal of climate change. More and more some of these extreme high rainfall events are bearing them. It's hard to take any one event and say with absolute certainty it's there, but, but we're moving in that direction. And, you know, again, the thing I would stress is that None of this is inconsistent with what we've thought for and we've known for a long time. If you put more of this energy into the system, if you heat up the earth, you're going to see these kinds of things happen. And so in some reason, we shouldn't be asking the question, is this one event climate change? We should be 
going past the question to which we already know the answer, which is that we're going to see more of this stuff. How do we get ready for it? How do we deal with it? You think in a way that that is the wrong question to be asking. It's a bigger question that should be asked. This this has also been called hindcasting. And I'll say that a paper from July that appeared in Weather and Climate Extremes found that the Colorado 2013 floods were worse because of human-caused climate change. Um, I I think it's interesting you bring up this idea of variation, because I think we all think of the weather as as varying. You're saying the variation is getting more intense. In a few places in this report, uh, it, it says that the Dust Bowl of the 1930s remains the benchmark for drought and extreme heat in the U.S. So, Jim, what would you say to someone who says, look at that? Uh, see, it's it's been much worse. Uh, put the variation into some context for us. Well, I think that um, comparing uh, these uh, droughts is uh, really not not the approach we should be taking. And I, I agree with Alan that uh, sometimes you got to take a step back and, and ask: Are we asking the right questions? Yeah. Um, we know that as you heat up continents, they tend to dry out because hotter air evaporates more water and it just gets drier. Um, <clears throat> so we can expect to see uh, more droughts as time goes by, uh, as we have more and more heat energy in the atmosphere. Uh, and and I, I should point out that the scaling here is important. Um, we've The planet's gone up in temperature by roughly a degree Celsius. Um, keep in mind, I think the listeners should keep in mind that the difference between uh, where we were, say, 100 years ago and a full-blown um, warm planet with dinosaurs roaming on it is only four degrees. Oh, wow. And so, so we're a quarter of the way there already. And we have 400 parts per million CO2 in the atmosphere. We haven't seen those levels for three to five million years. So in a sense, and this is, this is what Alan was getting to, in a, in a very real sense, um, all the all the weather systems we see today, all the climate we see today is impacted by human beings because we're the ones that added that CO2 to the atmosphere. Um, attributing single events, yeah, okay, that's a slippery slope. But attributing a collection of events like 70% more big rainfalls in, in the eastern United States, easy. Yes, human beings. Uh, Alan, you make an unexpected link between the deadly rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, and how the nation deals with climate change. Uh, that might seem to summon an unconnected issue. What, what is the connection you see? Yeah, well, let me first say on that, Ryan, that before we get into that connection, that, you know, what happened in Charlottesville and the broader pattern we're seeing of divisiveness, of sowing the seeds of hate, is just utterly reprehensible. There should be no place for that anywhere in global society. And that's the most immediate issue on our plate. That is fundamentally important on basic human moral ethical terms. The The concern I have um, around the broader pattern we're seeing, especially of late in this country, although it's not entirely restricted to this country, is that if we're going to come together as a global society, which is what we need to do, and solve an issue like climate change, which is truly a wicked problem in the classic definition. It's hard, right? It's, it's hard because it requires global cooperation. You know, the climate doesn't care 
about political parties. It doesn't care about political boundaries. It doesn't care about any of that. Um, it affects us all. And so for us to be effective in finding solutions, we have to trust each other. We have to support each other. We have to come together and have a collective will uh, that is, frankly, lifting everybody up. And so when we see not only individuals but even leaders pushing forward approaches that are sowing divisiveness and sowing difference, that works directly against our ability to solve any major societal challenge in front of us. And this is one of the big ones that we face. So uh, it's just a question of solving world peace and then we can solve climate change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll get that done by next week. Actually, climate change is a little easier. <laughs> uh, I'd like to wrap up, as, as we often do, with uh, glimmers of hope. Um, I think we have, have time for just, just yours. Jim White, what are you seeing in, in the science, in the news today that, that gives you hope in the face of climate change? Well, I... Just riffing off what, what Alan said, um, what gives me the greatest hope is that the solutions for um, sustainability, the solutions for climate change are really um, things like we need to um, treat each other better. Um, i give you an example. Population is a core problem that we have to deal with. Uh, the more people we have, the more impact we have. Uh, the key to population control is the empowerment of women. And what I see today around the world is greater and greater empowerment of women. And as they grow in economic power, as they grow in social power, uh, they have fewer children per woman. That's something that the demographers tell us. Um, in other words, the, I think the keys to success in the future really lie in um, us being better people, um, better to women, better to minorities, better to each other. Uh, and I know that sounds really, you know, kind of, actually, that sounds very bolder, doesn't it? But uh, it is it is true. And I think that that uh, should give us all uh, a lot of, of comfort. I want to thank you both. You heard climatologist, climatologist, easy for me to say, Jim White, who recently became CU's Dean of Arts and Sciences and environmental scientist, Alan Townsend, Vice Chancellor for Research at CU Boulder. When we come back... What you learn when you spend a decade photographing ranchers in Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You can almost smell the well-worn leather in the black-and-white images of a cowboy swinging himself onto a moving horse. This is one of the cover images of the new book, Mountain Ranch, a collection of photos shot at ranches in northwestern Colorado. And photographer Michael Krauser is with me. Welcome to the program. Hey, good morning. Um, warning to listeners that there will be some graphic descriptions related to livestock in this conversation, something perhaps to expect when you're talking about ranching. Early on in this project, you were invited to a cattle branding. Yeah, I was actually invited to uh, the first. The first episode that I was invited to was uh, calving in the spring, and and the next time I returned, it was for a branding, which is something I hadn't seen before. Uh, and you have um, just an excerpt of this cattle branding experience. Will you will you read your description for us? Yeah, this is from the from the afterward from the book. I said that. 
Brandings are not for the faint of heart. There is blood and spit, smoke and fire. There is the smell of burning flesh, and there are branded and castrated calves yelling for their mothers and nervous cows yelling for their babies. There is also dirt and manure and laughing and beer. The air is crisp, and there are sloppy joes and potato chips on paper plates. There are torn shirts, stepped-on hats. There are yelled-out phrases like, son of a buck. As cowboys, I've found, don't swear nearly as much as photographers. <laughs> you uh, took these photographs really over the course of a decade, is that right? Michael? Yeah, I began in 2006 with sort of an experimental... Um, trip to to photograph the uh, birthing of calves in the early spring of 2006, and I wrapped it up in 2016. What was it like for you to be at the calving first, and then this other rite of passage, the branding? Well, at at first I wasn't so um, enthusiastic about coming out to photograph the the uh, the calving in the spring. I was in a bit of a malaise, a creative and personal malaise after the death of my mother, and some friends invited me to come out and photograph, and I really couldn't picture the images, I couldn't picture the setting, and I wasn't that into it. But it was amazingly rejuvenating for me to come out and be in Colorado and be with these kind, hardworking people and, and start photographing again. And so then to return... To the branding, I brought prints for my new friends and, and saw something even more intense than the, uh, the calving itself, which was uh, the branding, which is a very intense uh, spectacle to w- see. What kinds of images came out of it? Out of the branding? Yeah. Well, there are, there are animals with intense looks on their face. There are, uh, there's physical activity. There's also... Uh, beyond just the social aspects of something that you haven't seen before, you're being presented with uh, visual shapes and, and interactions that I haven't seen before as well. So uh, it's all black and white, and it was a new a new subject for me, so it was all very interesting and exciting for me. Why black and white? I shoot black and white because I've just always kind of thought in black and white. I I really believe strongly in the idea of photography as personal expression, and so I believe that the the tools you use, both in camera and media, uh, and the final presentation, are very important. And so, I don't shoot with digital for my personal work. I shoot with film, and I love the craft of of tactile photography. I call it where you're touching every aspect of your pictures, from the film, you know, the camera. The, the film going into the camera, coming out, processing it in liquid and using stainless steel and chemicals and, and printing it with machines and glass. And so analog. Totally analog. Totally analog. Yeah. I kind of, I've kind of adapted the, the term tactile. I like that. Ah, because so much touch is involved in the yeah. process. We're speaking with photographer Michael Krauser, whose new book is called Mountain Ranch. And it's a collection of photographs taken over about a decade on family... Uh, cattle ranches in Colorado, uh, not too far outside of steamboats. A lot of them are sort of clustered in that part of the state. And um, you you also recorded interviews. I did. Uh, so you became friends and a confidant, really, of the families you were photograph- photographing, and they shared uh, memories with you. Yeah. Uh, here's Punch George of mm-hmm. Oak Creek, who was born in 1925. I remember one morning, it was cold, you know, we was calving a lot of snow. And I got on my horse and rode up into where the calving grounds was. 
And of course, first thing I seen was a cow down, and I thought, well, something out of there. So I went over, and she'd had a calf, and she had prolapsed. Pushed her insides up, you know. And she was dead, but the calf was all right. So I had to get the calf to the barn so we could feed it on a bottle. So there he is with a newborn calf, and he goes on to tell you that the horse freaks out mm-hmm. with both him and the calf on it and tries to buck him off. The horse throws the calf, uh, but Punch's overalls get caught on the saddle horn. So he's now stuck hanging upside down while the horse runs off. Uh, he laughs about it now, but it took him a long time to calm the horse down and get untangled. Well, this is the kind of thing that happens every day to ranchers. And he's telling me these stories, but these aren't the kinds of things that they would necessarily recount to each other or brag about or expect reactions from each other from because it happens to all of them and it happens all the time. It's one of the things that really attracted me to this lifestyle was that it really is uh, rough and tough and, and down and dirty and it's just how they live. Rancher Vern Albertson of Burns, Colorado told you a harrowing story from the 1950s. They were herding cattle near railroad tracks that run through a narrow part of the Colorado River Canyon. Right. Uh, it was so windy, they didn't hear a train coming. The cattle spooked, and part of the herd began to run. We were about a mile up the road before we ever got the cows stopped. But as I looked back, the, there was cows still on the railroad track, and the train began to hit them and kill them. The train killed 14 cows, and they piled up just two or three high in front of the train as it hit them. There was so much weight that it broke an air hose on the front of the train, and that shut him down. Quite the scene. Uh, Danger and death really seem to go hand in hand with beauty out there. Yeah, in fact, uh, um, it was actually Punch George's grandson recently said to me in recounting his lifestyle, he just said, so much death. There's just so much death out here in our life. And he wasn't lamenting it. He was just sort of being thoughtful about it. And and Vern is actually the one whose stories inspired the back of the book where eight elderly ranchers recount tales of growing up uh, in ranching in northwestern Colorado. How did you decide what to photograph? So in branding, it seems a bit obvious, right? And right. in calving, there's birth. Uh, but But in terms of the everyday. Yeah, well... As I learned more about their lives and, and the way that they live and work, I decided to concentrate on what I refer to as the traditional elements of these traditional lives, meaning the ways that their lives have stayed the same, not the ways that their lives have modernized or their methods. So I was concentrating on, on things that caught my eye and caught my um, fascination Uh, typical traditional ways of working, which included not just the birthing and branding, but also summer summer chores like fencing and shoeing horses and mending fences. um, What does mending fences actually look like? Oh, well, it's not really action-oriented like some of the other things. It's a slow, laborious process where a, a person will walk miles of a fence line repairing the barbed wire by hand using hand tools. And there's a lot of pictures of it in the book. Uh, it's something that I find uh, intriguing, really fascinating, this hard work and physical work, hand work, tactile work, if you will. Did they uh, like being photographed, these ranchers? And, and after 10 years, do you begin to fade into the background, perhaps, to some extent, which I think any documentarian would like? 
Um, nobody ever turned me down, let's say that. And I think the longer that I was out there, you're right, the more accustomed they became to having me around. And I really consider really all of these people in the book to be friends now. And they, we, we had a good time together. We did. And I, I, one of the first things that rancher Steve Hammer told me was, you can do whatever you want, just don't get in my way. <laughs> and I didn't. And over 10 years, uh, that kind of respectful distance became uh, more of a, a friendship. And, and my being around was not just work. It was, uh, it was a friendship, really. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with photographer Michael Krauser about his new book, Mountain Ranch, documenting ranchers in Colorado on family ranches for about a decade. And uh, there's a slideshow of his images at cprnews.org. You say that you really wanted to focus on that, uh, which has not changed greatly about ranching. Do you risk making ranching seem um, quaint or of another era or not adapting in that way? Well, that's been asked of me, and, and I don't really see it as a romanticization of the, of the subject. I'm very straightforward about the fact that the traditional elements are the tradition, are the elements that are fascinating to me, both visually and sociologically. So those are what I'm concentrating on. But by the end of the book, I think you're having a certain kind of experience where you, you've spent a certain amount of time not looking at popular culture. And I've never been a photographer who's intrigued by popular culture. And that's kind of rare because most photographers, they really want to reflect and comment upon popular culture. And that's never been interesting to me. I, I'm more interested in the uh, the aesthetic aspects and the... Um, Maybe it, maybe it looks a little more dreamlike or romantic or of another time, but I've always used the, uh, the, the Spanish expression sin tiempo, which means without time. These are pictures that could be of many different eras. Well, some of the older ranchers remember an era that does seem long past. Rose Horn of McCoy mm-hmm. told you about taking care of her family's dairy cows when she was a girl. Uh, and how they got cream to market. We'd set a can down by the railroad track, and there was a, it was a little passenger train that come through. So you'd, you'd hang out a flag? Yeah, you'd set the can down there and then kind of stick the little, it was a little stick with a little red flag there. And they'd stop and pick up the cream and take it to Denver and then bring the cans back. Wow. I hear your awe in that. It was, it, this was so fascinating to me. And this was a decision really late in the game in this project was to include these interviews. And I'm, I'm really glad that I did because it really kind of pulls it all together, the experience. And I'm also smiling because Rose Horn was a wonderful woman and she passed away in 2015. And I'm so glad that I got to hear her story. Oh. Is this, uh, in some regards, a vanishing way of life or one that's 50 years from now will have that same timeless quality? I can't really speculate about 50 years from now, but it's definitely a vanishing way of life. Even the people who live it will tell you that. And in Yeah, the what t- do they tell you about that? Well, in the, even in the 10 years that I've been working on this project, there have been people who have fallen away from this way of life and have had to take on different... Uh, careers and different ways of making a living. There's innumerable um, reasons for its vanishing, but uh, they refer to themselves as uh, endangered species. Did you feel often that you were missing the perfect shot? (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, you know, one of my favorite photographers, Jay Maisel, I heard him say something, I'm paraphrasing, but he said any photographer who's honest with himself considers himself a failure because you remember those pictures that you missed. And absolutely. I mean, I worked really hard on this and I shot a lot of pictures, but of course you miss a lot. What's one you missed? Oh, what's one I missed? Um, <laughs> let me dig back into my luggage here and tell you all of them. No, it, it just happens all the time. I mean, there's so many times when when somebody might be swinging up onto a horse or flipping a calf. I would say, you know, now that I think about it, there's this moment when they when they flip a calf in the air when they're about to put it on the ground and um, and and brand it or or doctor it, as they say. And I love the the visual of it, but it's something that I never did quite get the 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 that moment where the calf is sort of airborne and the and the rancher is all uh, physically involved in the in the moment. Thanks for being with us. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me, photographer Michael Krauser of Minneapolis, Minnesota. His new book is Mountain Ranch, and we've posted a slideshow at cprnews.org. He'll be at the Tattered Cover Bookstore on Colfax tonight at 7 for a presentation of the images and a book signing. Downtown Denver lost many architectural gems in the name of progress. And what was there to show for it? A lot of parking lots. Fifty years ago, voters approved the Skyline Urban Renewal Plan. It targeted 27 blocks for demolition, and its effects reverberate today. Some of those surface parking lots remain. Ken Schreppel teaches urban planning at CU Denver. He's also founder of the Denver Infill and Denver Urbanism websites. And I spoke to him earlier this year. And Ken, thanks for being with us. Thanks, Ryan. It's good to be here. We think of downtown Denver today as booming, Mm -hmm. but that certainly was not the case back in the mid-1960s when this plan came about. What was downtown like in the 1960s? Yeah, so in the 1960s, much of downtown Denver had been developed in the late um, 1800s. So these were buildings from, you know, 1880, 1890, that were at that point now 60, 70, 80 years old, and were in need of some refurbishment, or perhaps they were approaching obsolescence. And there hadn't been a lot of buildings that were developed during the previous decade, so in the 30s due to the Depression, during the 40s because of World War II. So we had a fairly old uh, building stock in downtown Denver. I think it's also important to remember that in the 1960s, this was at, it's really the peak of modernism, both architecturally where buildings were very streamlined and we looked back upon these older buildings that had a lot of ornamentation and those were not in favor anymore. But also more philosophically, modernism was really about embracing the future. And we looked back at those older uh, buildings, you know, we didn't see that they had much value to us. And they so old. 27 blocks were slated for demolition to make room for what? You know, this was a plan pushed by civic and business leaders. What did they want to see? What were the specifics of the plan? 
Well, it was really to uh, give Denver the modern city, the, the skyline that we wanted to have as a regional and, and, and emerging national city. Uh, again, a lot of these older buildings were two, three, four stories in height. And in the post-war era, we were starting to see really cities across the country exploding with skyscraper construction. And we needed room to do that. At least that was the thought. So out with the old in with the new modern skyline. Did that apply as well to people? That is to say, were people displaced? Definitely. The parts of downtown that were demolished as part of the Skyline Urban Renewal Project was known at the time as Skid Row. A lot of pawn shops and cheap motels and things like that, where a lot of Denver's uh, you know, unfortunate uh, people lived. And they were, um, yeah, they were definitely displaced. And Certainly today, I think we would have taken a different approach on that. But back then, I think the feeling was that, um, you know, they were going to find ways to help these people. But I think a lot of people were just sort of swept under the rug. You have intimated that this was happening elsewhere in the country, Mm -hmm. this urban renewal of other cities. Denver voters approved the plan by a two to one margin in May 1967. Mm -hmm. And what was torn down? Well, pretty much everything except for a few buildings. Uh, The boundaries for the skyline uh, was the uh, Cherry Creek to 20th Street, and then the alley between Larimer and Market over to Curtis, so about 27 square blocks. The only buildings that really survived uh, were Larimer Square, the DNF Clock Tower. Yeah, on the 16th Street Mall, the vestiges of a department store. Yep. The uh, building where the Hotel Teatro is today. And then the uh, Spaghetti Factory um, building, which was an old cable railway building, uh, 18th and Lawrence, that was also saved. And some of what you've described there that were saved uh, are Denver's most charming places. Yeah. Downtown, certainly. Absolutely. So what significant buildings were lost? Well, there was the uh, Daniels and Fisher Department Store, uh, the Tabor Grand Opera House, uh, old post office. Some of these were just beautiful, ornate buildings that we would just die to have today. They were either torn down during the Skyline project itself or, you know, in the years preceding Skyline during that same era, though, where these buildings were looked upon as not having much value. You can see photos of downtown Denver just after the demolition at cprnews.org. And there is a website called skyscraperpage.com, which we've also linked to with some remarkable photographs showing downtown Denver by the 70s. -hmm. And all you see is block after block after block of surface parking lots. Right. So what happened to the promise of all of those modern office towers that were to replace these historic buildings? Well, the plan here was that the city would tear down these blocks and prepare them for redevelopment. But the building of the buildings themselves was really dependent upon the private sector to come through and to do this. And the economy, of course. Yeah. And so it was really dependent upon the real estate cycles. And thing with 27 square blocks is that you're never going to have 27 square blocks of development in one real estate cycle. In fact, not even two or even three real estate cycles. And we still have a handful of those parking lots that are still left over from Skyline today. But it was really just let the private sector do its thing with the vertical development, but at least the land was available for them to do that on. But that took a very long time, really until today, Yeah, in many ways. It's been said that Denver lost some of its soul, Ken Schreppel, as a result of the Skyline Project. Do you agree? 
A little bit. Yeah, there were certainly some of those key buildings. If we had them today, we would be pointing to them with pride uh, as representing some of the best of what Denver was back in the 1800s. And they're no longer with us and we can't bring them back. So in that sense, we did lose a little bit of our soul. But Denver has a lot of soul. And so there's still plenty left over for us to feel good about ourselves today as a city. Was the plan overly ambitious, do you think? You know, um, the Skyline Urban Renewal Project was really taking a sledgehammer to the problem where we really should have used a scalpel. We should have been a little bit more strategic rather than just wiping out 27 square blocks. We should have gone in and said, well, okay, here we have a developer who wants to do a project on this location. You know, the buildings there are not of particular significance. And to be so more we concentrated. Can, yeah, so we could focus on those key areas and then save the buildings that really should have been preserved. Will the surface parking lots be gone totally? Soon, do you think? Eventually. I mean, I think it may take another couple of real estate cycles. Despite how many buildings have been built and and surface parking lots replaced, there's still a lot of surface parking lots, uh, not only in downtown, but when you look at Arapahoe Square, Golden Triangle, some of the other downtown uh, or the neighborhoods adjacent to the Central Business District. There's a lot to go, Ryan. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Ken Treppel teaches urban planning at CU Denver, and he's founder of the Denver Infill and Denver Urbanism websites. Fifty years ago, a massive swath of downtown Denver was raised in the name of progress. We spoke earlier this year. When you're alone and life is making you lonely, you can always go downtown when you've got worries. All the noise and the hurry seems to help. A beetle that wipes out ash trees is now in Colorado. It's only been found in Boulder and Longmont, but CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis reports Denver is bracing. Runners jog along a path in City Park, shaded by a row of towering ash trees. It's where I meet Denver city forester Rob Davis. He spots a fallen branch and starts picking at its bark. I drive my wife and my kids crazy because I, it's not just here. I, I do it all the time. I'm always looking for it. And I've even climbed trees at, at a middle school, um, just thinking I'm going to find it so sure. What he's looking for are signs of the emerald ash borer, a shiny non-native beetle Davis says likely hitched a ride to the U.S. from Asia in packing material. It was first found in 2002 and has since devastated city forests. To me, it's the single most destructive urban pest that Denver will ever have in its urban forest once it gets here. Despite Davis's search, he hasn't found one yet. No one has in Denver's hundreds of thousands of ash trees. But he says after seeing how the bugs snuck up on Boulder, Denver needs to prepare. In 2013, Boulder had no EAB. Summer of 2013, there was zero. By 2015, they stopped, there really wasn't even efforts to look for it because it was pretty much all over the city. And that's, that's, a, that's a fast thing to happen. The trees in Boulder's Scott Carpenter Park have been hit particularly hard. Boulder City Forester Kathleen Alexander shows me a row of infested ash scheduled for removal. If you look up through the canopy, you can see the canopy is really thin. You can see a lot of daylight through it. Um, you can also see some damage um, or a lot of woodpeckering up in the trees. The woodpeckers love to feed on the EAB larva. But they can't eat enough to keep the problem in check. Alexander says the city of Boulder has put more than $200,000 towards fighting the infestation. They're treating healthy trees, removing dying ones, and are educating the public. She says residents have lots of questions. You know, do I have an ash tree? Is there an ash tree near my property? Um, What is the impact going to be 
you know, to me as a property owner in Boulder. You know, should I treat my ash tree? You know, is it worthy of preservation? Denver City Forester Rob Davis says it's complicated. Each tree situation is different. Treatment is effective, but it needs to be done every two years to keep emerald ash borer at bay. Davis says if the tree is young, small, or unhealthy, maybe it's best to replace it with something other than an ash tree. But if it's big enough to shade your house, maybe it's a good idea to invest in saving it. It's a really hard conversation because there's not really a perfect answer for it. Davis took a group of city officials to look for answers where the bug has hit worst. Madison, Milwaukee, and Chicago. Denver Councilman Jolyn Clark went on the trip. I'm not forgetting Milwaukee, entire parcels of property that were city-owned that they had now dedicated to just having places where they would take tree after tree after tree, dead trees, because they couldn't deal with it quick enough to even take it to a landfill or recycle it. Clark says the message was clear. Once you find the bug, it's too late. I didn't want that to be Denver's story, that all the experts, all the people know, say, do something, do something, and the elected officials be hesitant to make an investment in something that you can't see yet. Denver has increased its forestry budget by $3 million over 10 years to fight EAB. That's a lot of money, but each tree provides savings by raising property values, curbing stormwater runoff, and reducing energy costs. So the city is treating healthy trees in parks and those along streets and sidewalks. In Denver, that's usually the nearby homeowner's job. So it's a change in how we do forestry, um, but I think it's one that the the size and the scope of this problem um, necessitated a different approach than we've ever had. The city is more than a year into an education campaign. To get people's attention, they've come up with the slogan, Be a Smart Ash, and set up a website that helps identify ash trees and your options for warding off the beetle. One of every five trees in Denver is an ash, and 70% of those are on private land. So the city says it can't do this alone. My fear is that that people don't know and don't look until it's too late, and then they don't have a choice anymore. It's just a dead tree that, that is going to cost thousands of dollars to deal with. For Denver City Forester Rob Davis, saving Denver's trees is not just an economic concern. The ash trees in City Park are nearly a century old. Davis says they're irreplaceable and will be treated until their final days. Denver's unique. Uh, we've grown this urban forest through through people, and it didn't happen naturally. You know, nature would naturally let that happen. This is this was effort by people, and it's a really unique thing that we made uh, this part of our city a much nicer place to be. As much as the city wants to preserve these old trees, it will plant as many new ones as there are ash to make up for the inevitable losses to come. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. Finally today, an all-male a cappella group from the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs is flying high right now. They're known as In This Stairwell, and they advance to the semifinals on NBC's America's Got Talent. Our big dream is to serve America, but tonight we're going to entertain them first. These 16 singing cadets brought military discipline to a choreographed performance the other day, which earned them a standing ovation and comments like this from Judge Mel B. You're you're all awkward, but it's adorable. You know what I mean? Like, I don't expect you to be giving it all that stuff. I, I like the awkwardness. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We'll leave you today with In the Stairwell's rendition of InSync's Bye Bye Bye. Hey, hey. Uh, bye, bye, bye. I'm doing this 
tonight You're probably gonna start a fight I know this can't be right Yeah, baby, come on Love to end this thing you weren't there for me So now it's time to leave And make it alone I know that I can't take no more It ain't no lie I wanna see you out that door To keep bye, bye, bye On this eclipse day, bye 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 from all of us at Colorado Public Radio. So I'm leaving you, Booty High.